Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Well, hello, and welcome back to Brave New Teaching, and welcome to our final in our series on poetry. Friends, for those of you who joined us last week when we were first live launching our poetry and creative writing workshop, thank you so much. We hope that you got as much out of it, maybe even more than you were looking to, you know, when you got into it. We really do have a passion for all things when it comes to like education and especially like English language arts classrooms, but man, Amanda can take poetry and run with it. And I love looking at different forms of art and various media and creative writing and all of that. It just really, we love looking at things from such a different kind of scope, if you will. (laughs) So today's episode is a little different than we had originally planned. We had originally planned to come at you with some brand new content. And then, you know, you love her and so do I do. Good old Amanda went and got herself sick. No, just kidding. She and her kiddos have been battling something that has just been going around for weeks now. And it's been like sinus infection after ear infection after anybody out there who works with kids and has their own kids or any combination thereof, totally understands where we're coming from on this one. So basically, we were like, well, we could record, but A, you'd hear Amanda's poor babies like coughing in the background, and B, it would definitely sound like a different type of a podcast. Like, it would kind of sound like Amanda Moonlight's on special, shall we say, Mm, adult hotlines. You know what I mean? And that's just like not quite, at least not this year. That's not where we're going with Brave New Teaching. (laughs) So we thought, hey, let's round out this poetry series with a rerun that really does marry two of the things that we are so excitable about. I don't know. It doesn't take a lot to get us excited about things, but poetry and rhetoric. Looking at poetry and using poetry as a vehicle or maybe even just a window into argument and rhetoric and like marrying kind of those two sides of English language arts curriculum where argument and rhetoric is normally saved for like with instruction and with exploring it. We normally save that for nonfiction, but we would like to push a little bit the envelope and say, actually, Poetry is a wonderful, wonderful form to look at um, in regards to argument and rhetoric and how an argument is made and all of the things that, and here I am just, you know, defining rhetoric for you. So let's all wish Amanda and her babies good healthy wishes and that their voices are back and everybody gets to continue the spring on a health kick. Um, We will be back at you next week with a whole new episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If this is something you've already heard, I mean, when I listened back to the poetry and argument rhetoric episode from last spring, I was like, oh, right. Oh, I forgot I said that. And now I'm going to like bring things back into my classroom. So if I forgot I said it, chances are if you've already heard it, 
it would help to do a little brush up. Um, and if you are new to the podcast, then welcome. This is one of our favorite conversations, actually, that we've had, which is hard to say because we've had so many and we talk daily, but we really like this one. So we thought it would be good to bring back to your ears. Friends, have a wonderful week at school and we will catch you next time. All right, let's dive into the episode. Well, hello and welcome back to Brave New Teaching. Friends, my friend Amanda is back. Hi, Amanda. (laughs) Hi, everyone. If you are new around here or if you just like didn't know, over the last couple of weeks have been solo episodes with just me and I have dearly missed my friend. She was on a like a bucket list lifetime trip with her family to Italy and she had the most amazing time ever and I still haven't heard all of the stories yet, Um, but I was just telling her before we started recording how much I missed her and now I have to say it for everyone else to hear. Well, I missed all of you too so very much. And I have to say, if you're thinking about it, I 10 out of 10 do not recommend taking (laughs) a three-year-old and a four-year-old to the Vatican museums. That's all I'm going to say. Wasn't it raining? I'm going to leave it there. Um, And wasn't it raining when you were there? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's that's special. It was it was rough. It was That's a rough so afternoon. Nice. Um it was a rough day. It was a beautiful trip. Yes. And we should we shall catch up about this later, but if you're thinking about going to the Vatican Museum anytime soon and bringing your 4 and 3 year old, you should reconsider. Yes, you should you consider consider a different choice. <laughs> You think, you know, I'm here. I have to do it. But like you don't. You just don't have to. You might yes. just have to go back another time. Yeah. And they have it. Trust me, the Sistine Chapel is pretty cool, but it's also like really hard to enjoy it when your two and th- your three and four year olds are doing everything they're not supposed to do in this. Are having a hard time because they're three and four years old and they're in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> One was asleep oh my gosh. on Luis's shoulders. And then the other was crying for me to pick her up, but I was just like too tired to hold her. So, you know, it's fine. Well, cause it's like stairs, like you're, yeah, that's, there's no ADA compliance in Vatican city. Just so you know. Well, I mean, think of, right. Like, it's like, I get it. But then you're also like, oh no, I had to like do all of that on foot. Oh my word. Oh, like all of it. Yes. Yes. It's uh, like the Eiffel Tower. Once you get to a certain point in these, you know, landmark monumental places that we see in all the movies and all the TV and you're like, I have to go there. And I'm sure this is worldwide. I'm just thinking of the ones I've been to. Like you get to a certain point and then you are on foot on a metal staircase going up the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? <laughs> like, why, well, how is my life, how have my life choices led me to this? What and was I doing? <laughs> these things are so iconic until you get there and you're like, okay, this is still iconic, but this is yeah. much more difficult than I anticipated. This is, this is like life-threatening. And yeah. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. My husband was taking illegal photos in the Sistine Chapel with Hugo sleeping on his shoulders. I don't know how, I don't know. There's something about dads that they, they can pull off like a good deed and a naughty one at the exact same time. I don't know. It's just special traits. It's Well, that's a podcast for another day. That's a whole <laughs> deep dive. <laughs> into the patriarchy frankly (laughs) happy to be home missed you all very much i haven't even listened to marie's episodes yet i'm so out of it so looking forward to getting back on track because it's nice to be home back in the swing of things and it's really nice to get away so happy to have both yes and we're happy to have you and one of the things i talked about in i want to say two episodes ago was how 
We uh, have a pretty good mix, a pretty good balance. If you go through all of our episodes between kind of broad, teachery, big picturey things, and then really niche down specific English language arts teachery things. And today is going to be one of the latter because I've gone big, broad strokes for a couple of weeks. And now we're ready to get into some like legit strategy and content teaching strategy. And we love us some good rhetoric. So we're going to get into some rhetoric with a different twist. I'm so pumped. This episode has been on my radar for a long time and we're getting close to episode 100, but this, we're not going there yet. This, this is going to be really good. But it is April. It is poetry month. And so we are going to bring you some strategies and some different ways to think about poetry, think about argument and rhetoric, and we are ready to get started. So Cue the music. You're listening to Brave New Teaching, and we are so much more than a podcast. We give teachers the inspiration, support, and tools to challenge the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a former English teacher from Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm a teacher from Southern California. Join us at bravenewteaching.com to find out more about our courses, festivals, and get every episode's show notes. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. All right, friends, we are ready to get started. We are going to be doing one of our kind of favorite type of episodes where we're just going to like nerd out and dig in real hard. We like talking about argument and rhetoric. We like talking about different formats of writing like poetry. And so let's go, shall we? For those of you who may have missed an episode that we did, I don't remember the number, but it was a couple months ago. We did Shakespeare and Rhetoric, Argument and the Bard is what we called it. And we talked about teaching argument with Shakespeare's works. And we had a whole bunch of ideas, that sort of thing. We'll make sure that that is linked in the show notes. But like, I wanted to start today just talking about like, why argument? Why rhetoric? What does that serve? Where is that best placed? And Amanda is nodding along because she has a lot of thoughts on this. So why don't you get us started? So I do have a lot of things to say about both poetry and rhetoric. Um, But in terms of in terms of rhetoric, I think what's newly dawned on me, like in the age of, I don't know, post 2020 and even a little bit before then. Yeah. I I mean, the reckoning, basically the political reckoning. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, all of that has just pointed toward the prioritization of the kinds of skills in ELA that are very, very transferable. And so I'm not, I'm, you know, neither, neither one of us, Marie nor myself would ever argue that literature doesn't have a place or essay writing. Some of the more traditional things in the ELA classroom absolutely have an important place. They need to be there. But I, I think that for me in my, in my experience, I've made a very like profound shift into looking at more argument and more about the reasoning and the logic and the construction of argument and how we read it, how we write it. And I've just seen really beautiful results from students in their ability to reckon with the world around them. And that, that is just, you know, in this time frame, seeming to be yeah. like a hundred percent a priority. It's always been important to me, but I didn't really, I don't think I connected the dots that if I wanted students to be able to have the tools to reckon with the world around them, that they needed the tools of, of rhetorical analysis. And I think the biggest 
issue that we saw, you know, in our district and, and maybe in others as well. And what we're hoping to do here with the podcast is to talk about it enough that it becomes something that's not reserved only for honors classes and not reserved only for uh-huh. AP classes, because that's the pattern that we've noticed here in Illinois is that rhetorical analysis is something set aside for high students. And it's just too bad because I think that's, that's ass backwards. Well, and and I think it's also comes off of a lot of like antiquated notions about what that means, right? Like a rhetorical analysis is something as complicated as an AP test, absolutely, as complicated as uh, high level literature and philosophy, right? But then it's also as simple. I don't want to say simple because I feel like that, I don't know, takes away from it, but it's as foundational, let's say. It's as important as foundational as just being able to have interpersonal skills and read into what somebody's saying, right? Like the skill of inference comes from the larger picture of rhetorical analysis. And that same like you, the like my whole, and I've talked about this on the podcast, my real definition of the purpose of education period, specifically public education, is to prepare informed citizens, right? Like in a democracy, it's to prepare informed citizens, to be able to navigate the world around them and to participate in their society. So if our kids then are not all being prepared in a way that they're able to recognize argument and understand that argument isn't always arguing, but like to be able to understand all the nuances of just communication and be able to see them for what they are. Like I have to be doing that to be doing my job. Right. And like, I also didn't put all those dots together until pretty recently, like to see like, Oh yeah, no, that's where all the eggs, that's the basket. That's where they go. A hundred percent. And that's where, you know, we, we've struggled, I think as a system and common core, well, it has some benefits. I think one of the biggest drawbacks is that, you know, at least in the way it's been interpreted in places that I've been, is that all skills are equally important. And I, I think that's a misinterpretation. I, I don't, um, for example, let's let's throw it on an example. Let's see if we can stir the pot a little bit. I like stirring some shit up. Let's go. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that there's ever a place in high school to assign narrative writing as a summative assessment. Huh. I just, dis- I disagree. That, so you can that's, feel, free to, feel free to disagree. And I would say that that's at the, at the, from the perspective of if we were to re- rearrange our priorities, I really think that whatever we're going to say is most important needs to begin at ninth grade, continue into 10th, oh, continue to 11th, oh, continue yeah. to 12th. So that, that starts to narrow the field of what's available. Sure. Now I, I find, and so with that said, if we're going to look at, to me, I think literary analysis, rhetorical analysis, and synthesis argumentation. Those to me are the top three priorities. Is narrative writing part of how you can make a clever argument? Absolutely. But do I want to dedicate the time that's really required to teach kids how to write narrative outside of maybe like a college essay? Not really. Um, so it just, you know, I think that's kind of like, that's the conversation that I wish that I would have been having at sure. some of the districts where I was, because I think the conversation is where we get to a good place for our students. Um, so I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I think... No, I think it's important, though, to think about because this is something that... And I'm, like, looking around as you're talking because it helps me process what you're saying because I'm like, 
this is exactly where my department's at. We're actually having a meeting in like a couple of weeks where we want to talk about the progression of research and writing skills. And then what Mm -hmm. does that look like? Because that progression means different formats at different grade levels, right? Like it means argumentative writing at one, an analytical writing at another, uh, reporting, you know, informational writing at another, whatever. I would even venture to say that narrative is part of it in that if you're able to write a narrative that like basically like reverse engineers a rhetorical and like that expresses something you know what i mean like that's the ultimate transfer of understanding and transfer of knowledge like i see that as like a senior level but this is the kind of conversation that we are hoping that you all our brave new teaching like friends and colleagues are able to start having and these conversations are hard they're hard because they feel threatening and i feel like i assume that they feel threatening because that we are questioning everything we've always done. And it looks like we're then questioning what others are doing. I don't know. And it feels like there's judgment or something like that, but. Well, sometimes that's because there is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Guilty as charged. I mean, I can't even tell you what my face looked like when I sat in a, <laughs> my first ever freshman meeting at one of my schools. And they told me that the summative, the summative assessment for our Romeo and Juliet unit was writing an alternate ending for the play. Yeah. I mean, and when you look at it from that standpoint that's an activity that's it's a cool activity it's just not not an assessment assessment. yes i'm with you now on this train yes so i think and i think that's the thing is like alignment is the first problem that we deal with in this whole conversation so to bring us back to rhetorical analysis i think it's incredibly important and i think for kids to get good at it they need to practice it all four years sure do they need it in seventh and eighth grade Great, but not really. I, you know, I think I think that they're learning enough of it through literary analysis, which is kind of where our conversation is mm-hmm, going today. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of overlaps, and so today, what we really want to talk about is the potential for looking at poetry as an argument and looking at poetry through the, through the lens of rhetorical analysis, because we have, you know, poets are uniquely positioned. Uh-huh for us as teachers and just kind of in the context of history differently than authors and differently than speakers or figures. And I think putting them in that spot gives us opportunities on both the literary side and the rhetorical side to do some really cool things with kids. Well, and the cool thing about poetry, and I feel like you've said it before, is that it's it allows you to dig in some really cool like devices and it's self-contained. Like most poetry is going to be doable in a class period or two. And it can be layered in within other thematic units of study. It can, you know, it it goes with a lot of different stuff. Well, hello, brave new teachers. Pardon the interruption. I wanted to invite you all to a pretty cool opportunity. Some of you have already had this and some of you have just heard us talk about it quite a bit. Amanda and I have a masterclass that is all about uh, designing and delivering formative assessments to students in ways that are really useful and purposeful and extremely equitable and inclusive in our classrooms. And so I wanted to make sure that you all have the opportunity to join us. It is our masterclass called Down With the Reading Quiz, Formative Assessments for a New Generation. 
And it is something that we put together, gosh, almost a year and a half ago, where we go through three different types of formative assessments that we use in our own classrooms that provide quite a bit of equitable and inclusive feedback for us and for our students about what students are actually really learning. We show you how to design and create and then implement and grade formative assessments that deal with students actually synthesizing information instead of regurgitating what they think you think they should know, but actually showing what they can synthesize. It also has different strategies for assessing analytical skills And then another strategy or two for assessing student writing skills in a formative way and all the while also assessing student understanding comprehension, whether that's reading or just understanding of a lesson. We give three different strategies for formative assessments. We absolutely love it. We have had hundreds of teachers come through this masterclass and say it is changing the way that they uh, approach assessment, formative assessment anyways, in their classrooms. And so we wanted to make sure that you knew about it. Uh, If you would like to register for free and actually watch it immediately, you can head to bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass or the show notes for this episode. Cannot wait to see you all there. Again, that is bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass. Join us for Down With The Reading Quiz and see the results in your classroom. Really change it all for the better. It is a true game changer. All right, back to the show. So today what we're going to do is try to help you all see this from a different angle and start thinking, oh, I can incorporate this here and this totally makes sense, right? Like start that process of where to layer in pieces or to go all out full-blown, we're doing full argument, like analysis of yeah. different poems. I'm rambling, so take yeah. <laughs> So Okay, so let's let's start with the two things that I think rhetoric and poetry should have in common in the classroom. And and for me, that's a framework for doing the analysis. Mm -hmm. So when I do rhetorical analysis, I like to use SpaceCat, but some people use Soapstone or they use something else. It's an acronym. It's a handout. It's a graphic organizer. Teachers should and most do have some kind of system that they go to for doing rhetorical analysis. Uh Uh, Same thing I have for poetry. With poetry, the way that I analyze poetry is through the big six. I can link more information about that in the show notes. I I won't distract us here. But what's really cool about these tools, these frameworks, is it gives kids the opportunity to dig in from angles where they feel comfortable and start the conversation somewhere rather than so what is the message of this speech or what is the meaning of this poem? We don't have to start with the hardest question. We can start with, um, and and in both situations, I think it's really cool to look at the rhetorical situation. And so we talked about that. And I think in our Shakespeare episode as well, understanding who's the speaker that's relevant in both rhetoric and poetry, the context, the purpose, and even just looking at the, general like time frame, the context in terms of like the immediate context around the moment of the poem, but also the historical context that frames it is really interesting as we start to do interpretation. Well, and as with other art forms as well, any type of writing, right? But then also like performance, a visual, instrumental, like different types of art. It's generally a reaction to something. Like an artistic creation is generally a reaction to something. So understanding that something then helps you to start analyze the reaction. And doesn't that 
inherently kind of say that this is going to be an argument. Right. A, re- a reaction to something is a is an argument for, right? The for interpretation something. of that. Right, exactly. Right? It's something, yes. And I think that's also where it's key to like talk about how an argument isn't arguing always. An argument is a claim. It's an opinion. It's a, you know, it's it's a something that's being conveyed, but it's, we're calling it an argument because that's what we're going to be calling it when we're talking about rhetorical analysis. But that argument isn't always a fight. Right. Yeah. And and our speakers and our, our poets, our speakers, our authors, they all have a lot at stake. I mean, the the impetus to write a speech or to write a poem is usually very immediate. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very emotional. Um, it's very founded in, like you said, a reaction to something that's going on. Um, and what ends up happening is there's a ton of overlap, right? When we look at rhetorical analysis, we look at tone. When we look at poetry, we look at tone. What we stop maybe with poetry ordinarily is we'll kind of just label it and let yeah. it be. Whereas in rhetorical analysis, we'd say the tone is being used in order to do what? And when we kind of transfer that over to poetry and say, well, you know, is this poet using this tone in order to affect blank or in order to convince blank? And we start to kind of use those verbs, the conversation around poetry becomes a little bit more interesting when we look at it from an argument standpoint. It gives it a why. And I think for students specifically, right? I mean, when we start talking about literature dorks like us, it's like, just because, you know, it's like the existentialism of art. There it is. Therefore, it's appreciated. But like for a 14-year-old, it's not necessarily true. And since our job is to help them build these skills, then they need to have a really clear why and they need to understand context and place within the why. And so being able to like put those building blocks together really helps students with engagement, especially if this is something that's a reach. And I know poetry is a reach for a lot of kids. It is. And like you said, Marie, I think that poetry is also contained to a pretty quick lesson. So if we could really take advantage of that, we're going to make progress in two, two birds, one stone. So maybe we should start with an example. I love that. Yes. Okay. This is a good idea. Audience. Are we familiar with the Langston Hughes poem, Harlem? Yes? Everybody raise your hand. (laughs) (laughs) It is the poem that is in the preface of Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun. To, uh, by the way, I thought the poem was called A Raisin in the Sun. It is not. It is called Harlem. Uh, I will admit that out loud to all of the world listening I had no idea. I was like, "This why is this called Harlem?" But well, that's a whole I think, other thing. <laughs> I think a lot of people also think that this poem is called "A Dream Deferred," which is uh, not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because like, I've seen it called that, and I've been like, I don't remember that poem. <laughs> and here, and here we are. So, yes. if we're going to look at Harlem, so okay, so let's go through two. Th- there's two ways to do this. So normally, when I do poetry, I analyze through the lens of the Big Six. So the Big Six mm-hmm. is speaker, paraphrase theme, title, turns, and tools. So those are like just very like literary focused types of places to start your discussion about a poem. And And they're great. We've had an episode where Amanda talks through the big six. It was early, early on in the podcast. So we will put that down in the show notes in case you're going, oh my gosh, you're going too fast. We have more on this for you, but just kind of like hear us out and then maybe backtrack. Yes. And I'm sharing about it all month long on Instagram and my Facebook group. So, I mean, if there's, there's tons of it out there, but if we were to instead shift over to 
a rhetorical approach, we might use Space Cat. And so Space Cat, the space part of Space Cat, is the rhetorical situation. So we're going to look at, in the order of space, speaker, purpose, audience, context context yeah <laughs> and then exigence it's hard to do out loud i know um, so those are the those are the places where i would start with a rhetorical analysis in understanding just the conditions of the poem not even the inside of the text itself so i mean knowing one who langston hughes is is a huge part of this piece knowing about the harlem renaissance mm-hmm. and all of the things that are surrounding this time frame decade and the work going in there, that's all incredibly important when we're going to start to interpret the piece. Yes. 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 Because, well, no, (laughs) I just, my brain did a little bird walk. I started thinking about The Great Gatsby. I started thinking about Mm -hmm. my unit about American dreams, and I'm replanning next year's unit. I'll stop. I'm here. Well, and so in a lesson, it's just, it's a good place to start to have kids, you know, work together. Let's fill up space. Let's see what, what can we note on the board, on a Uh handout, on whatever organizer you have? What do we know about the rhetorical situation here? Because we, if we're going to do a rhetorical analysis, then this poem needs to be interpreted within the context of it. You know, we're not looking at it as a piece of art on the wall with some anonymous you know, person behind it, which you can do with this poem if you really want to, but But this isn't a reader response. This is a, yeah, this is a different lens. Yes. Yeah. It's knowing, knowing the moment. And if you're using it in conjunction with a unit, like raising the sun or something else, like that's incredibly relevant and part of, part of this whole experience. And so then we read the poem, you know, we can look at, you know, for me, I think what's so powerful, I guess I should probably read it for everyone. If you're not remembering the whole thing, it's really short. Um, It goes, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? So we can do all of the poetic analysis we want of that piece. But when we get to the point, and Marie, I know you've taught this with your kids. We always get to this question where I ask them at the end about their interpretation of the word explode mm-hmm. at the end. And, you know, they're like, well, it could be exploding like fireworks. It could be a good thing. It could be yes, a bad they get very thing. Fourth of July. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so there is all these, right. And, and that's great. Like I totally want all of those interpretations, like bring them in. I'm not, I'm not saying no to anybody, but now what I can do with a rhetorical analysis lens is turn it a little bit and say, okay, well, let's consider the fact of when this was written, who this was written by, who the audience was. Yes. That is going to eliminate some of these interpretations because you have to consider, right? Like what the context and the speaker, all these things we know about the situation. We have to keep that as part of the analysis. It can't be absent from that. And so then it helps students start to see, okay, there's not a right and a wrong, but there's a wrong. And then there's a better. Well, there's a less informed and there's a more considerate. Right. Yeah. Like there's a, and what, I mean, what I have found using rhetorical analysis and specifically looking at like the rhetorical triangle and rhetorical situation or breaking apart or whatever, going through this process with students with things that are more challenging, like poetry, even a very simple, teeny tiny little poem like Harlem 
because it's tiny by length, but it is mighty by meaning. It makes it approachable and accessible for our students who are daunted by this. Yeah. And I mean, the same, we talked about this in the Shakespeare and rhetoric episode as well. Like it creates a space where students, because you're going to have kids coming right in who have either seen it before or are just really good at this. And they're going to scare the pants off of the kids who came in already kind of anxious about it. And it levels the playing field and it makes everybody start considering a lot of different things all at the same time in order to create their interpretation and their analysis. And there's so much going on with this in terms of skills, um, which is where Marie and I always come back to skills. And so for me, another part of this is I like to use poetry to practice that skill of getting over the hump from identification. Uh Uh-huh. To analysis, because this this poem is, is, again, really beautiful for that, because it's entry level in terms of what you can observe. We can observe all these question marks. We can observe imagery, right? Kids can say pretty like basic things about there are a lot of question marks, and then there's one period, and then there's another question mark. Well, okay, you've just recognized the turn. Like, that's awesome. The turn mm-hmm. is significant. Um, and then, But then kids kind of stop there with that why or so what. And so just like in rhetorical analysis, if you notice, uh, you know, repetition of a certain word or blah, 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 they know they're really good at noticing things or they get good at noticing things. They get really good at highlighting stuff. Oh, and then there's a huge hurdle (sighs) to get them to that next level, which is so what, so why? And so giving them the rhetorical situation, that's where it is. Okay. So Langston Hughes uses dried up like raisins, festering sores, rotten meat, crusting over. Okay. So take that imagery and put it into the experience of black Americans during their Harlem right. Renaissance. Like put it into the context. Yes. It- Start like start talking there. And then they're going to, you know, they still might have some pretty far-fetched things to say. Because they're kids and that's what they're supposed to do is try stuff on and figure it out. Yes. That's what we're here for. But it helps them see that the the so what doesn't have to be some kind of mystical. Right. It's not guess what the teacher's thinking. You can inform mm-hmm. yourself. There's and I think that's what I like, and this is what I was trying to say before. Like it demystifies this whole thing of analyzing art whether it's writing or visual or whatever, like art can be appreciated for art's sake, but it can also be appreciated for the humanity in it, right? And so demystifying that brings that human level back so that any kid can do that. And that's what they need. The the confidence building, the, the vulnerability required and how we can take them from a vulnerable position to one of confidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the greatest task we have. And to be able to inform themselves and see how these are strategies that can be applied to not just this, but to other things. And you can do this on your own and it all transfer, transfer, transfers. Yes. The other thing that's cool about this poem is it's been reinterpreted or re- performed, I guess, not even yes. reinterpreted, but performed in a lot of ways. So there's a, a great, um, there's a Nike commercial. Yep. That uses this poem and totally screws it up. Um, Cause it's like, it's, it's an Olympics commercial, I believe. And the interpretation's very much about like overcoming all obstacles. Say, hard work and Gatorade. Yes. yes. Yes, it is hard work. Well, hard work in Nike. I don't know if Gatorade. I guess probably. Okay, listen. Maybe I got my label wrong. I mean, and it's it's it. And the thing is, it's beautiful. Oh yeah, I remember that commercial, and I also remember going. "Uh, I think you've taken some liberties, Nike. (laughs) And and kids don't even think about that until 
we remind them of the power of the rhetorical situation. Uh Um, So it's just, it's a, it's a thought that kind of, I, I don't know, the more you play with poetry, the more I like to come back to, is this poet making an argument for something? And how might that help our conversation become a little bit richer and less like what Marie said, guess what the teacher's thinking, guess what the meaning of this symbol is. We don't want to do that. We want to try to ground them as much as possible. And not every poem has a ton of readily available context, understandably. And sometimes we need to look at symbols as they are. Um, But Uh this is just an interesting possibility for you. Maybe if you're finding yourself in a position where either your poetry unit needs a little push or your RA is feeling like speech after speech, after speech, after speech. Yeah. And you just need a little flavor. Yes. Well, and it's also cool to do something like if you got speech after speech after speech, then in the next unit being like, Hey, remember that skill you're really good at? We're going to bring it back because it's, you know, it's, you're able to pepper in something new with something that's tried and true. It's all the things that we talk about in our curriculum design chit chats in curriculum rehab and all the things. Yes. Being able to like come back to stuff that students have already gained confidence in and they've already got those skills, but then layer in more and layer in more and layer in more. It's all, it's all about that layering and the vertical articulation, the horizontal articulation. Mm-hmm. And if you can only control what you can control, this is it. Like, here are the ways to do that, that it doesn't get stale and it, you keep bringing those skills back to the surface. Totally. And it makes it fun for you, too, because you don't have to work so hard to get to something new. You can, you know, you can lean on the work you've already done with them to be able to do something new and exciting and different. So. And I promise to list in the show notes uh, more poems you might consider for rhetorical analysis. Uh, one might argue that everything's an argument, so it can be any poem and all wah, poems. Wah, are also we're not here for that today. Uh, I'll, I'll list some practical ideas for you that would be helpful and let you go ahead and read. And we'll link up a bunch of things in the show notes for you today so that you can go crazy with this uh, little brain journey you're on. Yes, absolutely. And in the future, we were talking before we started recording today, we are going to do some more rhetoric and yada yada type episodes. So if you've got an idea that you're like, you know, it'd be cool, but I just can't quite, or, you know, you'd like to hear our thoughts on it. Let us know, either send us an email, brave new teaching at gmail.com, or uh, it's probably better to reach out to us on Instagram <laughs> and give us your thoughts and your ideas. And as always, we would greatly appreciate if you would leave us a rating and review on iTunes, because that helps everybody else out there who might need a community like ours, find us and become part of the community because you all brave new teaching community are the best that there is. That's it. I said it. I said it. Thanks for bearing with me as I got used to recording again. I know it was a little, a little bumbly in the beginning there. Oh, please. You did fantastic. (sighs) It's good to be back. Yeah. They're just, they're just happy not to hear my voice the whole time. All right, friends. Thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful week ahead. And we will see you next time. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Brave New Teaching. We'd love to keep the conversation going over on Instagram. And while you're there, check out the links in our bio for the most up-to-date events going on in the Brave New Teaching community. Thanks for being here and have a great week at school. 